0: everybody and welcome to more of a comment than a question. My name is Paul Connor. Uh, joining me on the podcast today is a young scholar by the name of Felix Chung. He is a assistant professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and primarily interested in uh, population-level determinants of uh, human well-being. Felix, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm like so
0: excited to be here. So, um, just quickly, let's go through your background, because I know you uh, were born and raised in Hong Kong, but then you've studied in the States, and as a professor, you've been sort of globe trotting as well. So, um, yeah, just take us through a bit about your background and how you ended up in Toronto.
1: Absolutely. You know, like you mentioned, um, I was born and raised in Hong Kong up until my high school graduation, and then I moved to the States for my undergrad. Uh, I got my degree at UCLA, and then I finished my master and PhD at Michigan State University. And then I did a year of postdoc at Washu, St. Louis. And then I did three years of um, research assistant professorship at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. And I just joined the U of T last year. And yes, I didn't move during the COVID
0: pandemic. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So- Tell us a bit about your research. So um, I, I almost see you as uh, straddling a bit of a, a boundary almost between sociology, economics, and psychology. Um, you work with a lot of large-scale, usually observational data, uh, not, not many experiments in there. Um, and yeah, l- just looking at these large data sets and trying to figure out well, you know, what are the macroeconomic factors that are affecting um, the well-being of populations – how did, you, how did you sort of carve out that niche for yourself? Or how did you figure out that that's where you wanted to focus in psychology?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question that I constantly reflect on. Um, so, that's a story that I don't actually tell a lot of people. Maybe that's precisely you know, what this kind of podcast is for. Um, so, this is a little bit of a long story. Um, so, you know, um, I can go through this. Okay, so the story goes that um, my great grandpa is a sailor on a British merchant ship, and he's stationed um, in the Guangdong area, so near Hong Kong. Um, And one day, when he was working on the merchant ship, he saw someone, um, you know, another guy that's being chased by a soldier from the Qing government. Um, He ended up you know, taking the guy onto the merchant ship. But but because, you know, the British merchant ship is considered part of the British territory, the Qing soldier didn't dare to chase um, the guy onto the merchant ship. Um, so the guy ended up um, spending the night on the ship. And, you know, during the night, he asked my great-grand-uncle for, um, you know, Chinese calligraphy kit to write down... Um, some words that he meant for him. Um, so this guy that was being chased by the Qing soldiers wrote down these two words. In Cantonese is oi, which literally translate to universal love. Um, so if there's any audience uh, that's familiar with modern Chinese history, you will already know who this person is. Um, but for those, uh, I mean, there's no reason for everyone to be familiar with modern Chinese history. But this is a famous political philosophy of someone that's called Dr. Sun Yat-sen, or in Cantonese, Sun um, Zhongshan Um, So he is this really rare uh, modern Chinese historical figure that's well-respected by Chinese community all over the world. Um, so sometimes I still think about, you know, my family connection with such a major historical figure and, you know, his political philosophy. And in one of his speech. He made this famous quote that a nation's success does not depend on the nation's economy but on the nation's happiness Um, that has always been a great motivation for me Um, that's a story that has been driving me uh, thinking about how you know those two chinese guys back in 100 years ago um, already have this vision and i want to put this into practice through research to think about how can we use Policies to improve well being for the
0: population and not just for individuals. Wow, incredible. So, wait, I'm a bit confused. So, he was fleeing from a Qing soldier?
1: Oh, yeah. So, to give you a little bit more of the historical background, um, Sun Jong san or Dr. Sun Yu sen is the person who led the revolution to overthrow the Qing dynasty oh. and try to establish a modern Chinese um, Chinese government uh, based in democratic ideal. Um, so he's, huh. again, like a really major historical figure in modern Chinese history.
0: And this is pre-Mao like Mao and the... Pre-everything. The thing, Communist like, pre, revolution.
1: Yeah, it was still during the Qing dynasty.
0: Oh, wow, wow. And so when you say fleeing, like... They're on the sea, right? <laughs> I'm picturing little boats.
1: Oh, on like, the on the pier, sorry. Oh, so right, you know, he right, was right. running from the chain soldier from oh, the pier. Oh wow, wow,
0: wow. Yeah. Uh and so he, he found refuge and it was your you said great grandpa.
1: Great grand uncle.
0: Wow. That's that's wow, that's an incredible story. Um and yes, yeah, so I guess such a powerful idea that um a, a nation's success is um Measured by happiness, which kind of leads us nicely into um, your research on Hong Kong. We may as well start there um, because you've shared some some work with me, some really interesting work related quite specifically to Hong Kong and this idea of um, human sort of happiness and flourishing being um, the most important thing or like one of the most important things that we should be aiming for as a society. Can you... Yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about that, because I found it quite interesting and, and maybe worth thinking about a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe I can also tell you a little bit about the background and my motivation. Um, so the year was um, 2014. I was in my fourth year of graduate school. Um, I decided to take one year off my PhD program and took a job as a visiting lecturer at the University of Hong Kong. Um, so in 20 in the September of 2014 a major um, social movement happened um, it is called the umbrella movement for those of you who are interested in looking into this um, and there are so many things that I took away um, from that major population event um, but one of which is that I see this widespread dissatisfaction in the population and I think that was that moment that. Um, really motivates me to link my previous research on population determinants of well-being to specifically look at how this applies to my hometown in Hong Kong. Um, So, you know, some of my uh, recent research has been trying to take a more descriptive approach and just to see how population well-being is happening in Hong Kong. Um, So just to give you some broader context, um, so in many World Happiness Report, it has been argue that, you know, there are some major determinants of happiness. Two of the most important ones are economy and physical health, as measured by GDP and longevity. If you think about this from this perspective, Hong Kong should have some of the happiest people in the world. We have one of the highest GDP per per capita, as well as the longest longevity. So again, there's all the reasons to think that Hong Kong people should be some of the happiest people. But when I look at the subjective well-being data from Hong Kong that tells a completely different story. So, for example, um, in the Gallup World there's a question that asks participants, "Do you feel like um, you have an important meaning or purpose in life?" They ask this question for over 130 um, populations across the world using nationally representative samples, and you know um, th- there are diff- there are a lot of variability across the world. But Hong Kong ranked that last in this measure of purpose. Um, roughly one in three Hong Kong people do not see that their life has an important meaning or purpose. Um, I'm going to use an additional measure as an example. So a lot of my research uses a measure that's called life satisfaction. A item that measured uh, life satisfaction typically goes, you know, how would you rate your life in general? 0 being the worst possible life, and 10 being the best possible life. It has been you know, very robustly and consistently found that GDP is linked to greater life satisfaction in general. But Hong Kong is this major outlier that is the least satisfying place across the developed world. So it looks like I, there are a lot more that I can tell you about, but consistently across data sets, across measures of well-being. When we look at satisfaction, when we look at emotion, when we look at purpose, when we look at engagement with life, Hong Kong is always this outlier that it ranked that last in the developed world. Um, So I think the story of Hong Kong is really a cautionary tale for the rest of the world. Across the world, you know, physical health and GDP are some of the policy indicators that are being sought after by every country across the world. But the case of Hong Kong is telling us that this is not enough, that this policy indicates that we've put so much energy into, you know, may not necessarily lead to a more satisfying population. Um, so I think, you know, the case study of Hong Kong, of course, has importance for the local population, but it also has this global relevance to the world.
0: Hmm. It's, yeah, It, it it's interesting because... You know, usually in any kind of statistical relationship, there's there's outliers, right? There's there's certain cases in the the quadrants where there's there's less less cases, and it's often interesting to think about those outliers and, and think what we can learn from them. So you're you grew up in Hong Kong, you've lived there. I think you you have a probably a really wonderful perspective on it because you've lived in other places as well, and I think that. Um, Going to other places and coming back can open open your eyes uh to the specific features of the place that you're from uh in ways that um maybe people who've never left uh don't have access to so I mean this might be going a bit beyond your data, but like I mean it's just a podcast we're allowed to just speculate <laughs> um what do you why like why do you think this is um what what is it about Hong Kong that you think makes it this unique outlier?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question and something that I've been reflecting on a lot. Um, so obviously, you know, when you think about research, the first step is to look at the patent descriptively, like what I've just described to just to evaluate how far we're from success effectively. And the obvious next step is to think about how can we get to where we want. So. For that, we need to think about, you know, why are Hong Kong people unhappy? I have this, you know, broad speculation or hypothesis that there may be, this may be a case of learned hopelessness that's happening at the uh, population level, or at least in a really widespread kind of way. And what I mean by this is that, you know, when we think about attribution theory in social and personality research, we can think about the causes of different events. And in the case of Hong Kong, I think a lot of the major stressors are external, uncontrollable, and stable, meaning that they seem to be shaped by this kind of um, um, broader context that's difficult to change um, by a single individual. There are many of such stressors, one of which is, for example, is the housing situation. Um, So Hong Kong people, um, have some of the highest level of housing unaffordability, and you would, you would be, you know, borderline um, unrealistic, or maybe just plain unrealistic to think that one person can completely shape um, the housing market, the housing unaffordability situation in Hong Kong. Um, so just for context, if you want to own a three hundred feet apartment in a reasonably good neighborhood but not the absolute best neighborhood it will cost you roughly one to 1.5 million us dollars for
0: a 300 square feet apartment okay so just just for some reference my wife and i were just looking at apartments in new york and you know we have it's just two of us we've got a baby we've got a dog and we like when we went into 12 uh, twelve hundred square foot apartments. We often walked out and we were like, "No, it's too small. We we, we don't want to live be So that's four times what you're talking about would cost one point five million U.S. Wow, that's really incredible. Um, <laughs> kind of puts everybody's always complaining about it, the housing market in San Francisco, <laughs> but that really puts it in perspective. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really cramped. Um, it, I mean. That has that must be an outlier right like how common is that level of just personal space
1: Yeah um so this is an absolutely unusual thing that is happening um I think there's one um survey out there that try to look at housing affordability across major cities and every single year you will see Hong Kong as ranking number 1 um sometimes when I tell my friends about you know, my findings about Hong Kong or the Hong Kong situations. Occasionally, I would call Hong Kong the city of extremes. You either rank first in something and either rank mm. last in something. Mm. So you rank first in housing affordability and you rank last in purpose in life, things like that. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think the housing situation one is definitely a, a, a it's an example of that kind of external stressors that are stable and mm. uncontrollable. Um, just to give you, Would you like me to give you some additional examples? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think labor rights law is another one. Um, Sometimes I call this problem the promise that's 100 years too late. Um, So, you know, nearly 100 years ago, the International Labor Organization has called for 40 hours work week. And in the States, we have that. In Canada, we have that. I think it's actually lower than 40 hours work week. In Hong Kong, there's literally no legal standardized work hours. Mm. Your employer can technically ask you to work however much they want. Mm. Um, Although, um, to be fair, some companies do eventually develop some procedures to guide work hours. Um, But from a labor law perspective, as far as I can tell, um, there has been conversation, but there isn't a a legalized standardized work hours. Um, The ILO, International Labor Organization, actually create this ranking that rank countries across the world, regions across the world on their labor law. Um, So the ranking goes from one, two, three, four, five and five star. Um, So five stars are countries that are undergoing major unrest or war that they cannot even evaluate them. One would be countries that have some of the greatest labor law, and five would be places with the lowest, with the worst labor law. So given that Hong Kong is this like major um, commercial hub, Paul. Do you want to give a guess on where Hong Kong is ranked on this ranking from one, two, three, four, five?
0: Okay, <laughs> so What's the ranking again? On um, the is it like the quality of labor law, so protection for workers and workers' rights and stuff like that? Yeah. Okay. Well, number one.
1: Yeah. So I think I can see how you know people would think that you know Hong Kong is this. Major again, you know, a major commercial hub that they must have this great protection. But Hong Kong is actually ranked five, so we think that it is among the group of countries
0: that have some of the worst labor's law. Oh, uh, uh, I thought I thought one meant bad. I I meant bad. Oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's yeah. So if if this is okay, so yeah, like two hypotheses. There's the the housing. Um, housing stability and then the the work right so like uh within hong kong we should see for example people that have a better housing situation and people that you know have a better work situation so people that work less but also have good housing situation should be the relatively happier people within hong kong do we see that do we do you have data that suggests that
1: I have informally looked at that. I just want to quickly clarify, you know, those two are not two separate hypotheses, rather they're example of this broader hypothesis mm-hmm. of some kind of widespread learned hopelessness. Mm. Um, I can also comment on what you just asked me. So I have sort of looked informally at data like that. So I was thinking that, you know, Hong Kong can be a pretty nice place for people with a higher income, where they can, you know, afford those housing, where they may have more flexibility at work. Um, so when I look at Gallup Whirlpool data I try to stratify the data mm-hmm. by SES mm-hmm. and even when we look at the top 20% of the richest Hong Kong people they are still less satisfied than um, the poorest 20% of people living in Finland for example mm. um, So I think that really puts things into perspective mm. um, such that you know this kind of stressors this kind of environment mm-hmm. is not just bad for well-being for mm. um, people in um, in lower SDS strata, but it may actually lead to lower well being at the population level.
0: Mm, really interesting. So are there So if if we look just at the, even in the top strata, we do you find a relationship, say like this is just the top twenty percent income owner, so that everybody here has enough money. The people that work less in that top twenty percent are they happier
1: they are happier than the average mm. hong kong people mm, right but but what i was suggesting mm. is that if mm. we still try to put that into the global context they're not some of the happiest people in the world
0: yeah yeah so i i'm interested because um on these happiness metrics hong kong people are lower than people in like shanghai right and and yeah, no,
1: um, I actually think they are pretty similar uh-huh. um, so when I was working in Hong Kong, um the framing that I would go for is that a lot of Chinese cities mm. are sort of modeling Hong Kong's success, so they're building um their cities, sort of following how Hong Kong has developed in the past century or so, mm. and I again, you know. Um, in this podcast, given the audience, I was saying that Hong Kong is a cautionary tale for the world, mm. but it is also a cautionary tale for many, many cities, and perhaps especially for Chinese cities, mm. given some of the shared cultural route um, that, you know, maybe this is not the right pathway to go. Um, so Shanghai, I don't remember the exact data off the top of my head. I've looked at this at some point, And mm. from what I remember, they're a pretty similar happiness level. Mm. Uh, as
0: Hong Kong. Hmm. So what, what do you think are the policy recommendations that w- these hypotheses would suggest, right? So, I mean, housing is a very kind of intractable problem when you have so many people on a little space unless you want to implement some kind of intense population control or something like that. Um, I guess you can build up. To give people more space, and this is this is often a recommendation that I've seen. Um, but yeah, I guess the the labor laws are certainly something um, that could be looked at. But when I mean, have you talked to policymakers about this in Hong Kong? I, I get the I get the feeling, just as an outsider, that um, uh, in China and likely Hong Kong as well. Um, it is possible to implement pretty sh- like strong policies if you can convince the right people that there's an issue and that something needs to be done. Um, so yeah, have you ha- like I guess two parts of the question: what what do you think are the policy implement uh, policy implications, and um, have you sort of tried to like liaise with uh, government to to see if you can change any of these things?
1: Yeah, um, that's a great question. And that was precisely what I want to find out. Mm. Um, that's the reason why I look for a job after my postdoc at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. I was thinking, you know, with my psychology background, actually, I have zero training in how to influence policy. Mm. Um, and I thought, you know, public health people know what they're doing, um, you know, you can see how um, the science and the real world connects and how they can through national or even you know, WHO kind of policies um, to improve um, health of the population at a large scale. And especially you know, during COVID, you can especially see how you know, public health has that kind of impact in the real world. And that was you know, one of the major reasons why I went into the School of Public Health there because I know they have a strong connection with the local government. I did have some opportunities to um, talk to local policymakers, um, and um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I have tried to make those cases, um, but not a lot of them. Um, basically, none of them materializes. I think there's some interest that I was able to stimulate, but I don't think there was any like actionable things that have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of you know policy recommendations that I would make, mm. one of the absolute first things is to basically monitor the situation. Um, so the public health approach, one of the first things to solving any problem, um, you know, for example, dealing with COVID, even mm. is a really really good monitoring system. We need to know how things are going. We need to know the daily cases of COVID to be able to manage this. Mm. Mm. Similarly, there should be large scale surveys to monitor the level of well-being among Hong Kong people, Mm. for us to even begin to understand how policies are influencing them. Um, There are so many other aspects, Um, um, you know, like you said, housing and this kind of labor law are huge um, topics. And you know, when I was in Hong Kong, I was thinking about many different kinds of ways that may be able to allow us to break this huge topic down into smaller chunks Mm. to at least build that kind of momentum among policymakers to hopefully begin Mm. to make changes. I mean, none of them materialize, but maybe just briefly mention some of the things I've been thinking. Mm. Um, So I have a a study that is I have done a study that's not published that look at a specific kind of living arrangement in Hong Kong. It's called Subdivided Unit. Mm. Um, So it's like taking one of those 300 feet apartment that we talk about and then break this down further so that it is now shared by free family or something. Wow. Um, Just to give you some context, the average living space per capita in subdivided units is 46 square feet. Um, That's actually smaller than the average prison cell um, in Hong Kong. (laughs) Um, So I have done a study looking at how people as they move in and move out of subdivided units, how do their well-being changes Mm -hmm. using longitudinal data Mm -hmm. over 10 Mm -hmm. years? An interesting preliminary finding that we found is that, you know, for people who move from non-subdivided unit to subdivided unit, they see a major decline in well-being, a statistically significant one. But perhaps more worrying is that as they move out of it, because we have longitudinal data to follow them, there's actually no statistically significant increase, meaning that living in those kind of really poor living arrangement can leave a psychological scar to people. Um, so that was like really worrying. I was um, hoping um, that I can use some of those results to make this kind of pitch um, so that um, policymakers can really, um, you know, tackle this kind of major issue that 5% of the Hong Kong population is facing. Mm-hmm. Um, So those are some examples, but, you know, similar to many, many other um, social issues, not just in Hong Kong, but across the world, we sort of have to think about how to break this down into something that's a little bit more manageable Mm. and and try to advocate for effort that way. You know, it it won't exactly be um, the best approach to just keep advocating for, for example, reducing income inequality, we should be able to developing those know, concrete plans, actionable plans for policymakers to start thinking about what they can do about this.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, man, I have so many questions. So, like, do you think the government, so that Hong Kong's now in the hands of the Chinese government, more or less, right? Um, I know, I don't know that much about the situation, but um, I, there was the handover in 97, was it? Correct from the UK to the Chinese government, and then I think for a while the idea was Hong Kong will remain relatively aut- autonomous, but that autonomy has has pretty much been um, being sort of whittled away, and and sort of at this point the Chinese government is more or less fully in control. Is it is that fair to say?
1: Um, I think there is great. Um, political polarization, even among Hong Kong people, on how they see the recent political changes. Um, perhaps the most recent ones that has gained attention across the globe would be the um, um, the protests or the social movement that has started in 2019. Um, and you know, just to connect this back quickly to what we discussed earlier that would be another kind of major stressors that would be external uncontrollable stable um so i think broadly speaking um i think people different parties in hong kong have different perspective on how they see this kind of changes but um there are definitely people who categorize the context like Mm. what you have done just now
0: yeah so the Chinese government to me um, you know I I just like I'm trying to like think of the the telos right like so the Chinese government you go to them you say look you know Hong Kong's doing really well economically uh, and in terms of health but look the people say that they don't have meaning in life or like the the people uh, report low subjective well-being I'm just wondering if if I'm in the Chinese government whether I care right like it it just seems it seems to me as an outsider that very much the goals of the chinese government at the moment is sort of making the country an economic powerhouse a military powerhouse um and like maybe not so much focus on these like you know like it's it's all nice eh? like the social scientists wants to talk about happiness but look, you know we we are competing with the U.S. So we want to become a global powerhouse and something like that. So, I guess I just—you know—obviously, like in the in in the West, you know, happiness is a big thing, right? Like people think about it a lot as like you know, people leave high-paying jobs for lower-paying jobs because they're like, well, I just wasn't happy you know Simone Biles quits the Olympics and her, and she's celebrated because it's like no put your self care self care put yourself first and stuff like that I'm just wondering like is there a culture um is there a culture that is compatible with like a major focus being put on subjective well-being um and mm-hmm. and like meaning in life or is this kind of an afterthought uh and and do you think that could be part of What's going on?
1: Yeah, I like that question, Paul, because it, you know, questions some of the major assumptions that I'm making as I pursue my area of research. Um, before I say anything else, I just want to say that, you know, when I think about this topic, I'm not thinking about changes within the next year or the mm-hmm. next five years. I'm really trying to think about this maybe changes in thirty years or hundred years, and I just want to be a part of building that kind of evidence base to move towards that kind of future. Okay, so why do governments have to care about this, and or why does either the Hong Kong or the Chinese government have to care about this? Like you said, you know, they care about being an economic powerhouse, but why? Um, this is actually really hard to tell why exactly. Um, but my understanding, when I was looking into this, is to think about how do different policy indicators emerge to become policy indicators that government actually care about? Mm -hmm. Um, So I could be not 100% correct um, in what I'm about to say, but my understanding of how GDP become this major indicator that every single country seems to care a lot about comes from the development of the measure of GDP itself, which really started after the Great Depression that happened um, in the 1900s. Um, And the story goes that there's this legendary economist um, with the last name Kuznet, isn't it? I think that's also related to our income inequality work that we may touch on later on. Um, But Kuznet, in his congressional report that proposed this measure of GDP, he made this case that we need to start monitoring our economic performance in order to prevent another Great Depression. Mm. And in his congressional report, he actually talked about the shortcomings of a GDP measure. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along the line of, you know, this GDP measure is going to capture the totality of our economic product, but then it's not going to capture the suffering that go behind the production. So even back then, he actually recognizes there is this psychological aspect to it that's still important to policy. Um, But... Later on, you know this GDP measure took off and becomes this major policy indicator, and people forgot to measure that kind of suffering mm. in the sense you know his p- production in a sense happened in Hong Kong you know we keep pursuing GDP, but we seem to be forgetting the suffering that goes beyond behind that production fascinating so okay, so what I'm, okay so whatever okay, yeah so. My argument then is to think about how different kind of policy indicators come to become something that people actually care about. Mm. So, you know, in the past decades, maybe a little bit closer to our lifetime, we see sustainability being a huge issue that a lot of governments now care about. You know, the Chinese government also, you know, is concerned about carbon reduction, you know, environmental friendly policies. So could it be the case that eventually, if we build up enough of the evidence base, that we can begin to convince governments that subjective well-being is also a key policy indicator? And as it becomes more and more widely adopted among the global communities, it will gradually um, become a policy indicator that people care about and that they now need to develop policies to develop it. So... Like I said, I'm not saying that this will happen in the next year, mm. but that's sort of my hope and dream of how this may happen, and I just want to be a small part of this.
0: yeah, it's really interesting. I think like um in the west like politicians need to care about how happy people are because if people if people are miserable, they're probably gonna vote for the other. The other guy uh the other party uh and vote you out so you need to be really concerned about the happiness and well-being and i don't i definitely in a one-party system i'm sure on some level everybody in government th- believes and thinks that they are really caring about the good of the people you know um everybody sees themselves as a good guy in the world. Uh, <laughs> I've I've learnt so but I, I I guess there's like maybe slightly less urgency there or and also maybe like a bit more stomach for like um <laughs> well they say they're unhappy now but you know we are building into this we have this utopian vision that we're working towards and we just have to like we just have to dominate those pesky Americans first and, <laughs> and like uh, um yeah I it's so it's so interesting to me another thing that i i was curious about like this meaning in life questions really interesting to me um <laughs> because you know my, i mean i i know like the dawn of positive psychology and martin seligman started talking about meaning as kind of one of three main sources of human well-being and, and human happiness and stuff like that and i haven't really kept up with much of the research about meaning i mean i kind of intuitively believe in it uh to to some extent because i've always i i think within myself i've always sort of searched for some deeper meaning in what i'm doing i did some um like data science internships during grad school and it was really fascinating to me because i noticed that there was no meaning in it for me right like and i and i am like constantly um talking like I'm very skeptical of academia and what we contribute to the world and the worth of all this social science that we're producing and stuff like that but I really noticed when I went into industry that there was some like deep kernel of meaning that just wasn't there for me and I just started to like yeah just sort of drift through these days and these tasks and and just really had this sense of like i can only describe it as emptiness which is such an interesting uh like metaphor right like it's this physical metaphor of like there's something inside that's not there but you you feel it in this kind of tangible way so anyway i kind of believe in meaning but then also like on a logical scientific level i also don't totally understand it right like so if we ask an average person like what, you know, do you have meaning in your life? And they they say yes or they say no. Like, I don't know what's different really between those two people, right? Like, um, and I think, I mean, the original idea was like a connection to something larger than yourself, right? Is that how like you conceptualize it? And if that is how you conceptualize it, like why don't Hong Kong people have it, right? Because like, their lives are not much different to anybody else's. Like they have families, they have work. Some probably have religion. Some probably don't. But I mean, some some countries that don't have much religion are very happy, right? Like those the Scandinavian countries. So, yeah. Like talk to me. How do you think about this meaning element and where does it come from and what why don't they have it? Why don't people have it in Hong Kong and 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 how might they get it? It's kind of fascinating if you think about it.
1: Yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. And I also just want to say that I also don't have all the answers. Like I wish I had all the answers about meaning and purpose in life. Um, at least from the way that I see it, when I see meaning and purpose, I think about a sense of coherence and also think about a sense of engagement. So when I said en- um, coherence, do you see your life as having some kind of superordinate goal so that you're working towards it? In some way and when I mention engagement that means you know whether or not you're engaging um, in the kind of tasks every day to sort of build towards that and to, and I think there are research um, on how you know that kind of engagement can also be really good for uh, well-being I also remember this one paper that talked about a point that I always like to bring up when you when we talk about purpose and meaning um, and I think, I actually don't remember what the exact study has done, but the key takeaway from that study is that um, the interesting thing is that people who um, have high meaning in life. So you know, you mentioned how you don't really know how um, people with or without meaning differ from each other. The key thing um, that categorizes people with high meaning and purpose is that they are able to disengage from things that don't contribute to their greater goal it's not like it's not like there's a definitely difference in how people are engaging in meaningful tasks but it is that really disengagement from things that don't contribute to that broader goal that define them Uh, maybe that's in a little bit too strong of a term you know given you know it's just one study but you know that's something that I always keep in mind you know sometimes if I have this goal in mind it's actually more important to think about what are the things that are distracting from me of distracting me from it and that I would disengage from this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so that's the academic speak of meaning and purpose. Um, but you were also asking me about how all of this sort of apply to the Hong Kong settings. Um, for this, I'm going to bring up something slightly different. I'm going to take a maybe more self-determination theory kind of perspective. Self-determination theory is saying that, you know, if you have mastery, belongingness, um, and autonomy, you're going to find intrinsic motivation. The thing about Hong Kong is that there's actually very low intrinsic motivation. Um, a lot of people are working because um, they need the money to pay for those unaffordable housing. It's not like they're in it for the, um, to, to feel that emptiness in life. Um, a lot of things become um, externally motivated. Um, When I was teaching in Hong Kong, there was something that really struck me. Um, So I taught at the University of Hong Kong, which is considered one of the most prestigious universities over there. Um, And, you know, even there, like every student would be, you know, the absolute top student in their high school to make it there. And I would ask them, you know, why did you pick psychology or why did you pick medicine? So I have taught in both departments. And they would tell me something like, you know, because I'm going to make big money or because, you know, I earn high enough mark in my standardized exam to make it here. And this just seems to strike me as such externally motivated answer, you know, also consider that it is a, you know, a faculty member asking you this question, you know, you could very easily say that, you know, I want to help people or some mm-hmm. other generic answer and, you know, the conversation would be perfectly fine. But the the social norm there is that, you know, it's perfectly okay to say to someone that's sort of in a position of power that I'm just in it for the money. I'm just here because my standardized exam did okay. Mm. You know, it just feels like a lot of things are really externally motivated. Um, Yeah, maybe maybe let me keep it at that first and I will see whether you have follow up questions.
0: Well, is that true though? Can psychologists make a lot of money
1: Oh, I think in Hong Kong? when I was talking to students in medicine. Oh, medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs>
0: doctors. I, I did have a... So you said people need to work because they need to afford these apartments. Is there not... Like, what's the social safety net? Like, if, if I'm in Hong Kong, I lose my job, I have no income. I assume there's not, like, a large homeless population there. Like, what, what actually... What's going to catch you? What's the social safety net at the bottom of society there?
1: Yeah. Um, so the problem there is that um, there are public housing, but the queue for public housing is like insanely long. Um, so if you cannot afford housing and you're still waiting to get into one of those public housing, again, this goes back to a, the conversation we have earlier. Now you have to go into those subdivided units. Mm. Um, so the interesting thing about Hong Kong is that, you know, you really it's this kind of like economic powerhouse, you know, it's this huge global hub. Um, so that unemployment rate is really low. Like as long as you're willing to take a job, you will almost always be employed in one way or the other. And um, this may be also getting into a conversation about livable wage, that kind of thing. Um, mm. But, you know, if you, work at, if you work at an entry level job or if you make minimum wage, subdivided unit is pretty much the only thing that you can afford. So some people even argue that, you know, the subdivided units are needed because if we don't have the public housing to meet the demand, mm-hmm. you know, then they may actually go homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, so as bad as subdivided units are, at least, you know, there's mm-hmm. a roof, at least you have an address. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the situations that um, people are facing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Hong Kong also really pride itself in its really, really low tax rate. Mm. Um, And the implication of that is that there's also not a whole lot of redistribution that can be done. Um, So (laughs) Mm. that's sort of the situation over there. Um, Mm. There's some safety net so that as long as you're willing to work, at least you can sort of afford those subdivided units. Um, If you really cannot even afford those, that's also something called cage house which are even subdivided beyond a subdivided unit. So Mm. you only
0: get a bunk bed, basically. Mm. Um, Mm. um, Yeah, so that's Uh, roughly the idea. So the anecdote about the students telling you that they went into medicine to make money reminded me of this anecdote. Uh, I knew a couple who had lived in Hong Kong for a while, and they were talking about the culture there. And um, one one thing... um, one thing that they stood out to them was they felt that people were very materialistic and, and they said that, so one of, one of them had a job in which um, she was running competitions. I don't really remember the full context, but it was eventually she was running these competitions, trying to get engagement from Hong Kong people. And she said that it was fascinating because um, people cared about things so much more than money. Which is not really a comparison between materialism and non-materialism, but it, it struck me as interesting. So she would say that, like, she could have a, a thirty thirty thousand dollar prize of just money and get no entries in a competition because people were just like, "Oh, money! Like, uh, I, it's just money. I got plenty of money." Yada yada yada. But if it was a ten thousand dollar Gucci handbag, people would go crazy for it. So there was a really interesting drive towards things and and luxury goods and stuff like that as opposed to just money um and that just yeah i guess it made me think about i mean like those kids that 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 are choosing a profession because they think it'll it'll make them money maybe to buy those things like the the way people are trying like the goals people are setting might just not be goals that particularly make you happy uh and i I was wondering if you have have seen data like whether there is data on sort of just the basic um i guess the variable of materialism i don't know how much how well like that's been sort of operationalized within psychology but that that seems like it could be a piece of the puzzle
1: yeah yeah um yeah so i also have an anecdote to share in literally the first conference that I went to, um, is this, this German conference. Um, and, you know, I gave a talk and then after that, someone in the audience, I think he's a faculty member, um, handed me a copy of his newest paper. And, you know, he mentioned that, you know, you seems, like I, I must have mentioned something like I am from Hong Kong or something. Mm. And that's why he printed out his latest paper, and just on materialism and GDP. Um, the broader topic of that paper is about how, as most countries' economy improve, people tend to move from materialistic value to post-materialistic value. So they begin to think about things like justice, mm. democracy, liberty, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, and Hong Kong is this interesting outlier that despite the great improvement in GDP, they are this like again extreme outlier in terms of materialism. I think again it was like the most materialistic place in his sample. Mm. So that you know he actually has a footnote under his figure saying that the correlation is something, but it's actually something else after we remove Hong Kong as an outlier. It's that level of an outlier. Um so, I think you are definitely correct. Um, there are data supporting this idea that Hong Kong people tends to be very materialistic um although to be fair, I think um, given more recent events, um, one way to think about this is that it could precisely be this kind of clash between materialistic value and post materialistic values um, you know maybe. Um, again, you know, I think to be fair, it's not like everyone in Hong Kong is materialistic. Mm. You know, they may have higher level of materialism than many places. Um, but I think, um, some of the recent events could at least partly be attributed, um, to, you know, a substantial populations have been thinking about beyond materialistic value and thinking about those post materialistic values.
0: Mm. Yeah. Do you think you could live a happy life in Hong Kong? because i know i know you left i know like you're reasonably happy uh to be in toronto um and and out of hong kong um yeah do you, how big was your apartment <laughs> no, no, Like, uh, uh, do you know if you seriously though like just put yourself in the position that you can't leave hong kong like you have to stay there for the rest of your life um do you think you could live a happy, meaningful life there?
1: I think that's a question that a lot of Hong Kong people are grappling with. Mm. Um, So I'm going to share an embarrassing anecdote because this is probably what this podcast is for. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So when I was on the job market, um, um, before I moved to my current position... At one of the job talks, someone asked me these questions about whether or not happiness can be compared cross culturally, Mm. which is a completely fair, technical, good question that we need to answer in order to do my line of work. Mm. Um, And then I mentioned, you know, there's this 2018 Well Happiness Report that focused on migration and well being. Very, very long story short, what they found is that migrants' well being are much closer to the happiness of the local population than to the well being of people from their original countries. Um just to you know finish up um that study, you know, the, the take home message is that life circumstances seem to really matter for people's well being and well being seems to be more driven by where people are living than their um, cultural root per se.
0: Um or it's there's selection going on, right? Because migrants are not a random sample of, of populations. Did, did did this research sort of look look at that? Do we have pre- Oh, and-
1: man, Paul. Yeah. Now you are forcing me to get scooped probably because that's precisely something that I have in mind and I'm planning this longitudinal study that followed migrants pre and post-migration. Oh, wow. Cool. And also doing some kind of matching technique to try to see how they may or may not differ the local from the population from their original countries mm. even if there may be some kind of differences we can still use propensity score matching that kind of technique to at least try to get at that somewhat mm. Um, mm. so that's my next big project is to f- do this longitudinal studies on migrants um oh man now that i've talked about this i mean it's probably okay if you want to collaborate contact me try not <laughs> to screw me and it'll screw me over <laughs> um Yeah, so what are we talking about? Why are we talking about migrants? Oh, oh, wait, wait. You're asking me whether I can live a happy Mm. life in Hong Mm. Kong, or how do I think about this? So um, I have always, so even before that 2018 World Happiness Report, uh, just from my own research, you will know that I'm a big believer that life circumstances matters for people's well being. As weird as this may sound, this is actually not a popular opinion in the positive psychology literature. Um, so, in two thousand um, seventeen, when I was moving back to Hong Kong, I sort of know what I'm getting myself into. Mm-hmm. By that point, I already know that Hong Kong people are some of the least satisfied people mm-hmm. in the developed world, um, and I wanted to be there to to hopefully make a difference. That was one of the major motivation, even if that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to live my happiest life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that pretty much, um, I think my own personal experience reflect that kind of findings. Um, This is a very long way of telling that embarrassing story. But when I was answering that question that was posed to me in a job talk. I went from that well, happiness report to talking about my personal experience, mm. um, and about um, you know my emotional journey during the 2019 um, mm. um, population event in Hong Kong. Mm. And I actually you know shed a tear during the job talk. I was, I don't know. I think I was just really, really emotional. Um, mm. But I did get an offer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh that sucks and yeah um that's kind of funny though no it's just like it i think um might be a good time like i we you know i i think like we we could have a really interesting discussion about politics in hong kong but i, I like i know that you're in a a situation where there's probably some stuff that you can't really talk about or you don't want to talk about. I mean, I don't know. Um, And if the Chinese government is listening to this, like this is all just me making assumptions. But I do just want to recommend to my listeners, there was a really amazing podcast recently um, put out by Barry Weiss about uh, Hong Kong and specifically about um, this newspaper called the Apple Daily being shut down. Um, and just just listen to it. Like it's it's one of the best, most powerful podcasts I think I've ever heard. Uh, and yeah, it's yeah making me a bit emotional now to think about it. But yeah, maybe like let's let's just talk inequality for a bit because I mean this is kind of how we met. Um, mm-hmm. So to give the listeners a bit of a background, um, I sort of came to grad school to study inequality. Like to study the effects of inequality. Uh, my advisors at Berkeley had a grant; they so they had a bit of money up their sleeve to study inequality. I was very interested in equality. You know, back in Australia, I was um, I was involved in the Occupy Wall Street movement, Occupy Melbourne, uh, in, in the local context, and um, you know, I, I had read all this Richard Wilkinson, Kate Pickett stuff, and was just sort of excited about the idea that. Um you know the inequality of society really matters over and above the the wealth uh, the overall wealth or GDP of a society like it really matters for all of us for all of our health and i mean the the wilkinson picket line is that you know it's it 's not just the poor right it's it 's everybody even the uh the relatively wealthy people uh will thrive more if you equalize society and i I just think like you know i mean I come from a very left wing family and and so there was this just this sort of window there where it was like oh wow you know social scientists can contribute um and really sort of uh show with data and science um, so, you know like informative data to these sort of like Questions that have been around for hundreds and thousands of years about, well, how, how should we structure a society and is inequality okay and how much inequality should there be in a society? So that's how I came to grad school and I started doing that kind of research. Um, and one of my first papers was this paper, uh, Investigating a Relationship Between Income Inequality and Racism. And uh, you were a reviewer on the paper, <laughs> and um, it was so funny because, like, I know I knew I knew of you because I'd read some of your work on inequality, and I think I'd sort of emailed you, suggesting we could meet at this conference that I never end up going to or something like that. And so mm-hmm. we had sort of been in touch, and I knew of you, and then I ran into you at um, the SIPS conference. And we started talking about inequality research and this paper was still under review, right? So I think we had got to revise and resubmit and I was still kind of working on that and stuff like that. And I mentioned the, I mentioned the paper and like within a second, I could tell from your body language that you were the reviewer. It was so funny. That I was a reviewer too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, cause all of a sudden, and this is, this is just my, my pop psychology background, but all of a sudden you kind of put your hands behind your back which is like supposedly this tell of like uh there's something that i'm i'm concealing here and stuff like that and i was like uh, i think he's the reviewer so i just kind of asked <laughs> you are you the reviewer and you said you admitted to it uh and then we had a good conversation and you were a great reviewer like i still like the probably the best reviewer i've ever had just in terms of um how much time and effort you put into it and how like in depth your review was. And we only had two reviewers on that manuscript and the other reviewer was pretty soft. I don't know if you remember or you really read them, but they, they really didn't have much to say, but you really got in depth. So anyway, this is kind of how we met. And it was kind of in the context, uh, the context of this inequality research. So, but both of us, (laughs) how to put this right. So like, I think both of us have had maybe not the same experience but a similar experience with inequality research where we um, both kind of w- went into it enthusiastically but now kind of look at that look at that field um, as maybe not being a great example of, of rigorous social science. Would that be fair to say? I, Yeah, I'm struggling to find the right words i mean we've both published papers Mm -hmm. about inequality uh but i also think like both of us have kind of come to the conclusion that it's not really where we want to be focusing our energy and our and our studies so yeah tell me about your perspective i guess how you got into it what you what what you found about it and how your perspective has kind of changed over the years regarding inequality research?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, yeah, I don't know how to categorize this literature as well. There are definitely great works that has been done. Um, I think Paul's paper is one of the best papers I've seen. I think I actually wrote that in the review by the time that, you know, he came back, RNR, you know, it's one of the more vigorous studies that has been done on this literature.
0: Yeah, well, it didn't start out being that great. It was mainly you that made it that great because of all the stuff you made me do. But like. Yeah,
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, um, I think the information is out there and I don't think, you know, it's it's not something in my head. You know, there's all the information that's available out there for everyone to learn it, to know how to do that kind of like really rigorous research Mm. on income inequality. Um, maybe, you know, since you share your background on why you do income equality research, you know, I grew up in a place that has really, really high income equality. Um, so Hong Kong has one of the highest Gini and one of the lowest level of income redistribution in the world as well.
0: Uh,
1: mm. um, so that has always been something that's on my mind. And when I was um, graduating with my undergrad degree, that was right around the time of the Um, occupied Wall Street movement as well. And Mm. so when I was going to graduate school, that was something that has been on my mind. I decided to study this. Um, Like you, I can also transparently, you know, disclose that, you know, I think at a personal level, I I also think about things in a more liberal, left-wing kind of perspective. But with my scientist hat on, I do try to keep my biases at bay, to really just try to let the data speak. so I think there was one sort of pivotal moment in my graduate school um, that kind of changed my perspective. Um, so early on, I'm just like super motivated, excited, and just to, just to get started on income equality research. And I think in my third year of graduate school, I signed up to give a Brownback talk. And um, like, maybe maybe this is just me, maybe this is like many other grad students, I procrastinated to, you know, the day before my brown bag, before I run my analysis. And, you know, I found this finding that um, higher income inequalities is linked to a higher level of life satisfaction. And I was like, oh, crap, I have to present this tomorrow. I don't know whether I did the right thing. But anyway, you know, it's just a brown bag informal thing. So I'm still going to present the studies. And, you know, I set up the hypothesis perfectly, you know, I tell the audience about the data, it seems to be good quality data, I'm defining Gini this way, I did this analysis, That everything seems sensible, except till the results slide, I tell people that, you know, I found income equality is linked to greater life satisfaction, I don't have a discussion slide because I don't know what's going on, maybe I did something wrong. Um, At the end of that Brownback talk, you know, one of the faculty member at my university actually came up to me and tell me that Felix, you usually did great work. I actually want you to think about this and reflect on this a little bit more. Like, I trust you, maybe you are right. Uh, Maybe, you know, this is what the data look like. And he just encouraged me to keep an open mind. And I think that was really a moment um, for me to really, you know, think about things differently, to really keep an open mind. And I think after doing income inequality research for six years, um, and now you know, more than that, um, I eventually came to the conclusion that, you know, maybe income inequality have both as positive and negative. I guess to put this into context first, I need to clarify what I mean by income inequality, because I think there's a major distinction mm. between how income inequality is discussed in real life and what it means in research. Um, so just to quickly clarify, I think income inequality in daily life often have this major connotations about unfairness and injustice. And I'm totally on board, like injustice and unfairness are not good. They're a bad thing. Mm. Um, but then income inequality in academic research is typically measured by Gini. Um, I don't know whether we need to go into how Gini is computed But I think it's enough to say that Gini is not a measure of unfairness and injustice. It's just capture all sort of income differences. Mm. Some income differences are unjust, again, just to be clear. But there are also some income differences that are just. You know, that astronaut that have like years, maybe even decades of specialized training may quite justifiably make more than someone in some kind of entry level job. And Gini is this mixed bag of income differences, some of which are just, some of which are unjust. I don't think it's productive for us to think about reducing all sort of income inequality when we think about it this way. We need to think about those aspects of income inequality that could be motivating. And we also need to think about those kind of income inequality that are reflecting unjust and unfairness because those things are hurting people. Mm. Um, I mean, I think sometimes when I clarify it this way, it almost seems kind of obvious um, but I think in the literature this is it doesn't seem like an obvious point.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. I, it's yeah, it's it's an interesting hypothesis if you think about it, right? Like so the, the Wilkinson-Pickett hypothesis really is that like holding everything you have constant. Um it affects your so like your your job's going to stay the same your income's going to stay the same your house your possessions everything uh holding that constant it affects your health physical health your mental health your happiness uh everything important uh whether the rich people in your society get slightly richer Right, or the poor people in your society get slightly poorer. Like that's that's the general idea, um, and I think it's it's plausible. Like I, I do think it's plausible. Social comparison. I know you you some of your research has really looked at that mechanism of of social comparison. Like um, m- maybe if I'm living on a street, I'm happier uh, before the really rich family moves in. A few doors down right because then i have to see mm-hmm. the, this guy with a tesla or a maserati every day and i'm reminded that you know i'm still driving this um well my car's fine there's a bmw, <laughs> BMW 2009 it's getting pretty old now there's a few oil leaks but you know it's fine it gets me places um but it's definitely not a, a tesla or a maserati and it's yeah, it's it's certainly plausible, but there's all this there's all these problems with the research. And like, I mean, one thing that you mentioned in your review is that there's this. I'm not going to be able to explain this in the podcast, but the early research in this area didn't really control properly for nonlinear effects of individual-level income. And when you don't do that, you can see all all sorts of statistical relationships at the aggregate level where it looks like. Inequality is linked to all these negative outcomes, but that hypothesis that I went through before is not true, right? Because it's actually all driven by what you have. So if we hold what you have constant, um, if it's all driven by a nonlinear effect of individual income, then it doesn't really matter. Like, we can, a millionaire can move into your street, uh, and very poor people can move into your street. It's not going to affect you because it's all just about what you have, which is very <laughs> different my God, I had such a hard time getting one particular collaborator to like, understand that point mm-hmm. um, and to see that it, like, it was a, there's a distinction sort of being made there between an effect of inequality, say, oh, I just knocked my microphone. I think it's going to be okay. Sorry, everybody. And a nonlinear effect of individual income. That same collaborator is the person who told me um, if they found a positive effect of inequality, they just wouldn't publish it. Which that i I've told you about that, and we've discussed this before um and I think you even mentioned it uh in this uh blog you wrote for Samin Vizier that I read it's a pretty remarkable thing right and and it's I'm, I'm sure like it won't be surprising to many people, I think like social scientists ninety ninety five percent of us are liberal left left wing leaning almost everybody studying inequality throughout that period, that sort of post, like, Pickett and Wilkinson rush, almost everybody studying it was kind of trying to show negative effects on it. Um, (laughs) And I don't know. I, it's, yeah, like, I I sometimes think that... um, Academia in certain areas, in certain like politicized areas, and I, I don't think it's equally as problematic in all areas, right? Like if you're just sort of studying cognition or something like that, that's sort of doesn't have political implications at all. Mm-hmm. It's 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 not going to be an issue. But obviously, when you're studying something like income inequality, it's it's inherently politicized, right? Because it's like yeah, almost all over the world, wherever you go. There's, like, people who want to push for a more equal society, and there's people who not necessarily want to push for a more unequal society, but they're would they against the policy changes that would equalize society. They're against, like, higher tax rates or, like, a stronger welfare state and stuff like that. So, obviously, like, this research, if you can sort of show, ah, well, there's this negative effect of income inequality, it's affecting all of our health badly, even, even rich people. This is kind of ammunition for one side of that political debate. And I think this is a perfect storm, a perfect storm that exists in certain areas of social science, where it's like, if we do statistical test X and find result Y, this this helps a particular side of this political debate. And I just think that that research is just often so problematic because you get people who literally are like well if i find the wrong result that is going to help my opponents or my political opponents rather than my favorite side i'm just not going to publish it right and and if you have that kind of bias i mean especially with large observational data sets, there's so many forking paths. There's so many different ways of analyzing the data and weighting the data and including this control variable or excluding this control variable and and stuff like that. Not to mention just this basic choice of like, do we publish it or do we not publish it? Then there's all sorts of bias in terms of what gets cited and what doesn't get cited. And you end up with this situation where, yeah, you have this whole literature which like you can do sort of a meta-analysis on it and it ostensibly shows something. But I just feel like you can't really trust that literature because of the way it's produced and the humans, the specific humans who produced it. And it ends up being, you kind of have to look at certain areas of academia as if they're akin to a left-wing think tank. Uh, And I've sort of said this before and some people just sort of agree and some people sort of disagree and some people i have this what i think is a naive view that well we can sort of just trust people like there's enough people like felix Chung, who's you know willing to publish the data whatever it says but i guess i'm just not not sure about that um and and it sucks because like before i came to grad school i would hear conservative people sort of dismiss social science and and say oh well you know it's all produced by like people with a left-wing bias and you can't trust any of that stuff Mm -hmm. and i was i always strongly disagreed with that i'm like no you're a science denier this is like this this is serious stuff this is a yale university study this is harvard you know this is stanford you know like but i don't know i can't at this point honestly deny that they have a point about some of this stuff and i I don't think we're quite as bad as a left-wing think tank. I think you, you definitely can publish results. I mean, you've published results that go against the, the preferred narrative, right? Like, you, you're one of the only people who's published a paper showing positive effects of inequality. And uh, you'd be cool if you explained that. But I don't know. Like, what do you, what do you think? Because it, it's such a... I don't know. It's been such a change in my perspective uh, mm-hmm. in the last six years since I started grad school Um, really interested in your perspective on this as well
1: yeah yeah I think I also have shared some anecdotes um, some of which can actually be verifiable as long as you have access to the journal Um, Mm -hmm. I cannot recall the reference off the top of my head but there was this one paper that has this one footnote that says that um, this measure of income inequality is not linked to life satisfaction so we're going to drop it and not mm. present the results for it. Mm. Um, wow. I don't know how science can progress better by hiding more results. It seems like science can progress better if we have mm. all the information. Mm. Um, I think um, we may also have a conversation about this before, but I think my perspective is more about, you know, a white hat bias that most people want to want to... Um, be right. They want to do the thing that is going to benefit the society and just their perspective that, mm. you know, by distorting some of the results this way, you know, maybe this will help the society by, for example, reducing income inequality mm. um, and maybe, you know, it's actually, in their minds, reducing unfairness and injustice, which you know, a lot of us will actually be, be supporting to reduce um, injustice. Um, but of course, you know, I also partly agree with you that you know, if white hat bias exists in a you know, in a group of researchers where most of them are left-wing, then, you know, you can become that kind of liberal bias. Um, So I'm not completely disagreeing with you on that part. Um, And that's why I get so excited about, you know, the credibility movement and all the new practices that have been developing, because a lot of those practices are meant to keep our biases at bay. You know, we can do pre-registration, we can do cross-validation, we can do... You know, multiverse analysis so that our choice of covariates are not arbitrary or well, maybe they're arbitrary but at least mm. um, we have more ways to verify the robustness of these choices um, <clears throat> and I think that's really um, my sort of takeaway and something that I hope that I can recommend for the field in general um, is to take up on those new practices um, something else I have done with my collaborators and my students is that you know, some of my studies definitely can have that kind of um left wing be into it. Or maybe it's because I'm devoted to those issues and that's why I'm willing to put time and energy into mm. those. Mm. But then, you know, before we start the studies, maybe even before we write the pre registration, I would tell them that okay. We could potentially find that, you know, income inequality is good for people. We could conceivably find that you know, defunding the police has this kind of mixed results, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. You know, are we going to commit to publishing this regardless of what the data say? Are we have enough confidence about the method and the data that we're going to publish this regardless? Um, and, you know, all of this is to say that we should, as scientists, with this scientist hat on, we should be focusing a lot more on the methodology, on the data, on the causal inference that we're drawing, Um, instead of the results per se. Um, I know that this is a bit idealistic, but I'm going to stick with this because apparently, you know, the whole credibility movement is ultimately this grass move movement that's driven by a lot of idealists and it seems to be taking hold. So I'm going to keep saying this um, until, you know, I can no longer publish or something.
0: Yeah, I think think it's a really interesting point you made where, you know, if you are going to do research of the kind that I described before. It's like, well, here's this policy relevant question and I think I'm going to find X. And I think when I find X, that's going to uh, make my preferred policy more likely. Uh, whenever you do this kind of research, you could f- you might find Y, right? And you <laughs> might find Y and it might actually help your political opponents, right? And I, I just think that like, a lot of people don't, realize that going in and and i think there's there's far too much um there's far too much scope for people to do this kind of research with uh zero possibility of actually helping their their political opponents right because you can fudge with the data you can just choose not to publish something uh you can yeah um i mean i've seen really large scale expensive projects just like net just hidden just like abandoned purely because Mm -hmm. they didn't they didn't show you know what what the researchers were hoping to show um Mm -hmm. and there's so there's so many people doing so much stuff that it's that kind of bias and i think like pre-registration helps in a way i think pre-registration does leave generally a lot of researcher degrees of freedom open so it does it does leave a lot of possibility for people still to um still to sort of play around with the data and, and get it to fit the narrative and it also doesn't um it doesn't necessarily ensure that things are going to get published uh so uh registered reports for example i think are like a really good uh, solution to this problem because if you do a registered report yeah you you're going to really have to stick very closely to an analysis plan and you're mm-hmm. going to end up publishing it um almost always right um so yeah i mean i've done i've done one registered report and it was it was interesting because kind of like it 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 was related to inequality, uh, kind of related to inequality, more more just related to, like, relative wealth. Um, And we found that if you manipulate relative wealth in this economic game, the the poorer people discriminate more, right? Um, (laughs) So, like, that's not... That doesn't fit, like, a left-wing narrative particularly well. Uh, But it did get published because it was a registered report. But uh, can you guess how many citations that's had in like two, three years since it got published. Zero. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> so like I know I, I honestly believe it may just never get cited, right? Because like it's it's essentially it's like showing that yeah, like if you strip everything down in this minimal group situation, um, lower wealth or relative disadvantage produces uh more like um in-group bias, uh, just at, at this very sort of core level, um, and you know nobody, nobody kind of cares about the in-group bias of the disadvantaged. Uh, it's <laughs> it, really the focus is much more on the in-group bias of the advantage. I mean, I kind of think it could matter uh, because you know some in-group bias of the advantage could be in response to perceived in-group bias among the disadvantaged and you could get this sort of symbiotic relationship going and i don't know like got to do more work in in that stuff but it's just it's interesting to me that that particular paper gets no citations i mean my inequality paper just gets like a citation it feels like every month um (laughs) but i think actually maybe because like i mean one typical thing that you do at the start of a paper about inequality is like Inequality has been linked to all sorts of negative outcomes, including this citation and this citation. And then, yeah, I'm just now like become one of those citations. And it's like, yeah, and income inequality was linked to racial bias, Connor et al. And you just get this cheap citation where they probably just read your abstract uh, Mm -hmm. and don't care very much about the paper. Also, because we use Google Scholar data. I'm finding (laughs) so like when somebody else wants to use Google Scholar data they're like oh this data has been shown to show all sorts of things like that and you get this kind of cheap citation where they probably didn't read your paper at all either (laughs) yeah
1: yeah I guess I also want to be fully transparent that I think I may have a couple of paper that also sort of um, go that way Um, I've been trying to keep myself more accountable But like you said, you know, I think the citation pattern is really problematic. I almost have this like template written out for review, and I would just ask people to be more balanced in their introduction, there are all this paper that either found no results or sometimes Mm. that, you know, income equality can have positive outcomes, why are you not citing the studies? Mm. Um, This just happened like so often. Um, Mm. And I mentioned the white hat bias. I think this can really show up in the citation patterns. So that's a sort of meta science project I have in mind. Like again, if people are interested, you know, we can do this together. You know, maybe just get income inequality experts to just rate the method and and, and the analytical strategies of paper mm. and then we can code the results and the subsequent citation patterns. Like I almost feel like it's so obvious that I don't even need to do this study to know that all the studies that found the negative findings are going to be getting cited a lot more than the Mm. findings that find positive or not results. Mm, mm. Um, So I think this is another aspect that this is problematic, especially since, you know, citation counts do matter for things like awards, promotion, finding a job, all that kind of stuff.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. Um, Similar in sociology, I think I was talking to a sociologist I know, and they were saying that, yeah, they think like it, the the bias is, is does sort of creep in at the review stage, but they were saying, Yeah, they've, they've published plenty of stuff um, with null results related to inequality. Um, it just never gets cited. <laughs> yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I feel like a lot of this is really a shame because, you know, again, because I feel like it almost just comes from the semantics, like I mentioned earlier, a lot yeah. of this I feel like is driven by the. By the Vocabulary that we're using, yeah. that income inequality in daily speech has this, you know, injustice tone to it. But mm-hmm. then, you know, in research, it doesn't necessarily have that. I think I used an analogy that seems to stick with you. That seems to be pretty was pretty compelling at the time. Um, so I think I was telling Paul one way that I think about income inequality. Uh, I, was, I think I was talking about income inequality a context under which where we can study income inequality without poverty hmm. and that would be looking at professional athletes you know i like to think that you know in the nba um, in general you know that's a pretty reasonable degree of meritocracy except maybe you know whether terrible series what by max contract is maybe you know out of the scope here um, but generally you know that's pretty good meritocracy you know if you are the number one pick you know you you know that one day you will be as good as LeBron James, you'll be pretty okay with making rookie salary because you know you have that kind of mobility if you put in the work for it. Um, at the same time, you know, for the many minimum wage guy at the end of the bench, you know, they know that if hypothetically they can be as good as LeBron James, they can also get that max contract. Um, but then they also know that there's some degree of meritocracy that, you know, even just being here, I would be pretty happy. Mm. But then we also have to keep in mind that there's no poverty, pretty much at least, you know, in the context of mm. them playing the game. Also, I'm also aware that there are mm. also separate issues about how professional athletes manage their wealth after they retire and stuff.
0: Well, um, what but yeah, you... I
1: think that was one analogy that I've used
0: before. This is, I'm I'm glad that the conversation is now on basketball. <laughs> <There> are... <laughs> so, what would you say about WNBA players who? argue that it's incredibly unjust that their salaries are much much lower than the NBA players right so I think some WNBA players are making like 80k or something like that they're like assistant professor level salaries (laughs) (laughs) and and yeah and so I mean because essentially what you're arguing is like no well there's there's a free market here and it's you can make a good argument that it's quite meritocratic. Like obviously like a team wants to pay Steph Curry $30 million a year because they feel that it's in the best interest of the team, right? They're going to, um, that's what he's worth. Um, so yeah. What, what would you say to the WNBA players argument, which I think is just like, um, it's an argument from equity. This is, This is unjust because, you know, the men make so much more than us. um, But we are also elite athletes at the the top of our game as well. And I think they would probably say, yeah, maybe less people watch us. But that's because those people are all sexist. And like we're living in this sort of system that's biased against us in all sorts of ways. And so we should get sort of there should be market intervention to, to lead to more equity between male players and women players.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, if I'm being honest with you, I haven't given this a lot of thoughts, so I don't know what I said will be well thought out. Um, but again, you know, I think um the, the more general principles that I go with is that there can be income differences that are just, there can be income differences that are unjust, and we shouldn't just make sweeping conclusions that, you know, income equality is always this universal ban. Mm. So, you know, in this situation, um, you know, perhaps we could if there's some ways to increase the interest in WNBA, you know, that could mm. be some kind of like win win win. Situation where you know there's a greater population of people that are enjoying mm. a new sport, um, a new league, and you know there's the um, um, there's the free market that are able to you know afford higher salary, mm. um, things like that. Um, yeah, but to be honest, again, I haven't think this through completely. Mm. But mm. I think at a minimum, if only this perspective allow us to think more. Think deeper about Mm. the kind of income differences That can be good There are certain Mm. kind of income differences That can be bad I think that's already Mm. um, something That's like one step ahead of the current literature Which seems to be predominated Mm. By this narrative that income differences Is always bad
0: Yeah It's something I've thought a lot about Um, In in undergrad I did philosophy And a a bit of political philosophy And stuff like that And, And there's a pretty heavy focus on John Rawls and so his idea is you know basically in a nutshell is like well if we were sort of disembodied souls and we were sort of choosing we had to choose how to organize a society um and we didn't know where we would end up in this society so he calls this the original position his idea is that he thinks these disembodied souls would choose a system whereby there is some inequality like it's definitely not like a totalitarian communism where everybody has to have the exact same income and wealth and stuff like that. However, like the way that they the people in this position would accept that inequality is if inequality is only justified if it benefits everybody, right? So if you can show that no well if we have a bit more of a free market that allows some level of inequality, some level of kind of incentive for people to create and start businesses and be be productive and take risks and yada 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 this actually sort of the rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing and and they would sort (laughs) of point to societies that have tried to maintain absolute equality and, and kind of say well in in those cases you tend to see like that absolute equal level sink quite low um Whereas societies that have more inequality have sort of reached a higher level of sort of uh, well-being for everybody or like material well-being for everybody. I don't know. It's something that I think about a lot because also like one, one piece that I think gets left out when you talk about, well, yeah, LeBron James deserves more money than me. He's a much better player than me. Although we've never actually played one on one, so who knows? Like, you know, I could get on. I could get on fire just from three. And just, you know, who knows? But no, he's probably better. But like, but then then again, LeBron LeBron James now has like a billion dollars, uh, and I have much less than a billion dollars. And his kids, uh, there's no in a, there's no equality of opportunity between his kids and my kids, right? They have access to like far better education healthcare um everything um and so you you sort of anytime there's inequality in a society you're creating these um unequal starting points for the next generation <laughs> and and i i've always struggled to reconcile like the obvious um uh, the obvious nature of it being justified that you earn more than me as an assistant professor compared to a postdoc, like that's obviously fine. Like, and my PI earns more than me and, and LeBron James earns more than me. That, that seems obviously justified, but the fact that our kids then have unequal opportunities seems far less justified to me. And I think like, it's very, very hard if you have high inequality in a society to avoid having quite um, an inequitable starting points for Mm -hmm. successive generations so yeah i i just constantly bounce back and forth between between these two ideas and i just i still think about like what is what is the the happy medium here like what is the best way to structure a society and what is the optimal level of allowable inequality and Mm -hmm. yeah i'm curious what, what you think about that
1: yeah, I think I'm just mostly with you. Um, what I mean by this is that it seems like, you know, we want, so like I said, you know, I think, you know, I definitely do want economic fairness and justice. But what this means is completely different to different people. But I think just from our conversation, it seems like, you know, we do agree that, you know, that kind of fair economic system starts from a place where there is at least some level of equal opportunities, even if not completely equal Um, So a shameless plug here is that I have a paper in press um, that talks about this worrying trend about education privatization and how this may be linked to perceived social mobility because education privatization means that, you know, like you said, families from higher SES can now afford better education. And this becomes a cycle where, you know, it reduces the amount of intergenerational mobility. That, you know, finding that medium is precisely why we need to think about income differences as having mm. some positive and some negative. Mm. And a narrative that income differences is always going to be bad does not seem to mm. mimic how will life work. It doesn't seem to get us closer. It, well, I think ultimately, like we need to have that kind of like nuanced conversation to to Mm. move towards that kind of medium, where there's some equal opportunities, but at the same time, we have some level of competition, some kind of meritocratic system um, Mm -hmm. to to have some kind of differences in um, Mm. the, the incentive structure.
0: Well, nuanced conversation is what we do here at More of a Comment Than a Question. So you're saying we need more podcasts more, uh, exactly. More, more thinkers to come on the pod. I'm, uh, yeah. So I'm really grateful. Uh, that was a, that was a fun conversation. Definitely hit me up about that collaboration. I'll make the graphs. <laughs> <laughs> and You can do all the work, and uh, that'll be that'll be perfect. Um, yeah, man. Thanks, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed, really enjoyed talking to you, and I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Paul. Have a, gr- have a great weekend
1: you too.